I say to them, why are people overweight? Why is there an obesity epidemic? A lot of times they're looking around like, is she really asking us? And then I sometimes prod them and I say, is this just, you know, people who are overweight don't know how to count? They don't know how to do calorie count? Calories in, calories out, right? Just a math problem, right? If they could just figure out math, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic, right? A large majority of them are thinking, yeah, it's a willpower thing and yeah, it's if they just would exercise more and, and be more conscious about what they're eating, very few of them really think it's as complex as it is. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 74 of season four, number 269 overall. Why are we overweight? Well, it's not as simple as just eating more calories than you burn or eating too much fat. Of course, both of those things do play a role, but obesity is a complicated issue with many, many factors. A lot of it actually starts about two feet above your belly, right in your brain. And there are many theories about what is actually happening up there. But what we do know is that there are pleasure and reward centers that are activated when we eat things like candy bars, or a hot dog, or triple cheese pizza, or Whoppers, or cake. Then there's also the theory of why it's so hard to lose weight. The belief that the body kind of programs itself to be a certain weight and fights like heck to stay there no matter how many hours you spend in the gym or how many calories you cut out of your diet. And that is called set point theory. And today we are going to dive into all of that and a lot more as we are joined for the first time by Dr. Mickey Witt. She is a neuroscientist and an adjunct professor at the University of Miami who specializes in obesity. As a matter of fact, she teaches a course on all of the reasons why three out of every four adults in the US are currently overweight. And in doing so, She's blowing the minds of young students who begin the semester thinking that it is in fact as simple as calories in and calories out. And today, it is our minds that are about to be blown because Dr. Witt is here and class is in session. It is a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Glad to be here. You do not strike me as the kind of person who has struggled with their weight. I could be wrong, but you just don't strike me as that type of person. So I'm curious as to what drew you to this. Well, I actually was one of those people that struggled with their weight. Uh, when I was an adolescent, Chuck, I, I was overweight. Uh, I was never, uh, I never had obesity, but I was certainly overweight. And an understanding of nutrition science really just wasn't something that was around me at the, in my adolescence. Uh, but I got to a point around my early teenage years where I looked around me and I have, um, I have a big Italian family. I have some uh, overweight and obese, obesity running in my family. And I looked around and at one point I just kind of realized this is kind of a crystal ball. And if I don't figure it out, I'm going to end up on, you know, in an unhealthy uh, path. Not to say that anyone around me was really teaching me on healthy uh, things. It was just no one was really teaching me how to eat healthy. So I took it upon myself as a, as a young teenager, over, a little overweight, kind of more conscious of my body to 
pull some magazines off the shelf, read uh, read more about health in that capacity because this is pre-internet. <laughs> this is at the time where uh, you know the, the closest thing I could get to get information about this was something like a health magazine that I saw in the grocery store. So I, I started working out. I used to go to the YMCA, did step aerobics, and uh, that's how I, and then I started eating healthy. I mean, I, as far as plant-based eating, as a, as a young child, I, I actually pre, when I was still overweight, I did not eat animal products. So my story with that was I, I was in that age younger, like eight years old, where I really was getting upset when I would learn about what was on my plate. And I know a lot of people probably get over that and they have that cognitive dissonance, right? But for me, I never got over that. And I just said, every time I've learned a new thing, like this is, this hamburger is, is actually a cow. You know, these hot dogs are pigs. I said, I'm not eating that. So I think veganism as a term really wasn't a thing either. So for the longest time, my family was just like, she's vegetarian. But at the same time, they didn't really know what to feed me. So uh, it was important when I got into those teenage years to really find out how to eat. And, um, and yeah, so I started exercising. I started eating right, weight drops. And, uh, and that kind of was the precursor to ultimately my, you know, getting into neuroscience, getting into studying obesity, body weight regulation, because it did always felt, feel personal to me, um, in terms of what I had done to be able to, to lose the weight and, and feel healthy, you know, ultimately. So you take it upon yourself to school yourself up, and now as a career, as the adjunct professor down at the University of Miami, you're schooling up this next generation of minds and teaching them all about obesity science. Um, I want to read a portion of the syllabus that you give to the students and just to ask you to kind of translate that for us, because there's a lot of big words in here. I just want to make sure that we, we have a thorough understanding of everything that we're going to be talking about here today. So the syllabus reads, this course is designed to evaluate dieting, rebound effect, set point theory, brown fat, adipocyte morphology, adaptive thermogenesis, and the key neurological mechanisms relevant to the etiology of obesity with specific focus on both homeostatic and hedonic neurobiological pathways. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> you want to unpack it. Is what Please you do. do right? Please do. Yes. <laughs> so that was, I guess, one of the, the opening sentences of, of the syllabus. And it's really the bulletin description, because when the students look through the catalog, they kind of decide what they want to, to learn and what courses they want to sign up for. That's really giving you, in a nutshell, some of the highlights of what we cover in um, the neurological mechanisms of obesity, which is what they, uh, the university labeled my course uh, after I had you know, kind of transformed it into that because it was just kind of a general obesity course and being a neuroscientist who studied this stuff, I kind of put my spin on it. And so, yeah, we study all, all of those things you mentioned. So basically the lens of me, the neuroscientist comes through and the students get to learn about all of these components. So. One of those components you mentioned, rebound effect, you mentioned set point theory, which I know was discussed in uh, one of your previous um, obesity chats. But um, and we talk about also brown fat, which is a type of fat, which I think was also talked about before. Set point theory is one of those things um, that is still a theory. So that's one of those things I, I actually have them do some research into what's out there with regards to set point theory, meaning the idea being your body has a set point and it wants to be that weight, and it's always gonna fight to defend that weight. But I want people to realize that's still a theory and you can reset your set point. Um, so we talk about the literature and what's been done to 
kind of support or negate that theory. Uh, brown fat is another thing you mentioned. Um, brown fat is a type of fat cell. At adipocyte morphology you mentioned that goes along with brown fat um, because white fat the white fat that pads us, right? Um, and then your brown fat is your thermogenic fat, your fat that actually, um, for, for in layman's terms, burns heat, makes heat. We have this uh, particular uncoupling protein that we can measure inside of brown fat, uh, measure uh, when we quantify brown fat. And that is a marker for showing us that there's thermogenesis, there's heat creation um, instead, of, instead of storage, energy storage, which is what happens with white fat. Other stuff you mentioned, I mean, there's so many things. We talked about homeostatic versus hedonic neurobiological pathways. Um, those are important because homeostatic is your body defending homeostasis, balance. And a lot of the time when the students are learning about different neuropeptides, different challenges to our energy balance, it's always a challenge to, to your homeostasis, to your ability to maintain a balance. And um, your body will always defend maintaining a balance. It's always striving for homeostasis. And so we, a whole big portion of the course is all about what are all the factors involved in a homeostatic pathway. And the whole, we get through that, it's a whole lot. And then we get to the hedonic, which is pleasure-seeking pathway, which are all different nuclei within the brain. Ooh, Dr. Witt, your neuroscientist is showing. Um, so I would imagine that as the semester unfolds, uh, the students thinking about the causes of obesity changes quite a bit. Um, and one of the things that you ask them, I believe at the very beginning of the course is, well, what do you believe causes obesity? Why do you think that people are struggling with their weight today? What are some of the typical answers that you get? I absolutely pose that question at the beginning of the semester. I say to them, why are people overweight? Why is there an obesity epidemic? What is the cause? And then there's a lot of times they're looking around like, is she really asking us? Because she's the obesity expert. I thought she was going to teach us this. And then I sometimes prod them and I say, is this just, you know, people who are overweight don't know how to count? They don't know how to do calorie count? Calories in, calories out, right? It's, it's just a math problem, right? If they could just figure out math, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic, right? Some people agree with that. Some people raise their hands and, and say, absolutely, it is that. That is why. There's some people say it's a willpower thing. And, and they're, they're not ashamed to say, I said, just tell me if that's what you think it is. You know, give me, give me what, what you think. Let's put those ideas for why we're in this situation that we are. Because we'll all agree we're in an, we have an obesity epidemic in the country. And they do. And then they tell me, you know, a large majority of them are thinking, yeah, it's a willpower thing. And yeah, it's, if they just would exercise more and, and be more conscious about what they're eating. Uh, and then, and so I really do establish that baseline initially. Very few of them really think it's as complex as it is. And then, and then my evaluations at the end of the semester are always something to the effect of my mind was blown. I really was one of those people that thought obesity was as simple as calories in, calories out. And I am, I am, happy to say I've been, I've been enlightened. I've been woke, so to speak, they say, you know, that we've learned so many things. I always tell them, look back at all the stuff we've learned. And, um, and they're mind blown. And there's so many more things. You could carry this over to a second semester often. So uh, it makes me feel really glad and grateful to know that they, uh, that they gleaned something from the course.
Well, let's let's see if we can get uh, the exam roomies here to glean some things too. Um, so if it's not calories in, calories out, it's not that simple. Um, a lot of people, you know, say, well, look, you know, my mom was overweight. My dad was overweight. My whole family was overweight. Clearly, this has to be 100% genetics. So that brings into the uh, the purview, the discussion, nature versus nurture, right? So mm-hmm. how much of a role do genes play in terms of whether or not we get obese? Right. That's a great question. And the description you just gave is the description that I use for learned helplessness. This is a, a script as a term within psychology. Uh, my mom's overweight, my family's overweight, I'm gonna be overweight, I'm just gonna it's in my genes, I'm just gonna why why try? And so we talk about learned helplessness and how that plays a role in one's development of, of obesity. Um, and also, you know, your genes are not your destiny. Your your diet it, I think I think it was Michael Greger said something like the genes uh, lay the foundation, but the diet it's, I'm getting the analogy wrong, but it's something like the, the diet is what's going to turn on or turn off. You know, if you if you do have a genetic predisposition for for disease or for obesity, you know, for example, it's your diet that will. Colin Campbell talks about this as well in the China study, but your diet is really critical for what can turn on and turn off those genes. So yeah, you may have um, some sort of predisposition due to your genes. But your diet plays such a critical role, a critical role for people to, to really not understand that, that what we put in our, our mouths really plays a big role in how our genes express themselves. It's a travesty. And it has a lot to do with Western medicine being, uh, you know, allopathic medicine, right? Being so um, solution oriented, being so ready to put a Band-Aid on a, uh, on a cut or give you a medication for something that is ailing you as opposed to getting to the root cause. Um, and so that's a shame. But uh, yeah, there's tons of research out there looking at twin studies. Uh, those are uh, those are the best to be able to look at identical twin studies and really manipulate uh, manipulate the diet to see the impact, right? Because if they are genetically the exact same, what do we what happens when we change the diet of one uh, twin versus the other? And then they do lots and lots of these twin studies, these monozygotic twins where they're completely the same, they shared an egg um, versus dizygotic where they are fraternal and they see less, oftentimes there'll be less as less strong of an effect with the fraternal twins and the strongest effect with the, the monozygotic because obviously those are genetically the same um, in terms of your diet being able to to um, overrule those those genetic predispositions that they may have. So there's a lot of research out there showing that. And I was always intrigued by those studies when I was an undergrad. And of course, we talk about them a lot in um, in the course I teach. A lot with the gut bacteria too, because there's a lot of studies there too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, gut bacteria is always big on this show, uh, but but I I do love the the concept of analyzing the diet of twins. And it was a couple of years ago I had the opportunity to interview uh, twin brothers, identical, uh, who live over in the UK. And one went on a completely strict vegan diet, healthy. The other one, not so much. Um, and the changes in their body type their body composition over, you know, not too terribly long of a time. Uh, it was startling. I mean, it, it was, it was really eye opening that one got, you know, slightly more chiseled, but then the one who went on the plant-based diet, I mean, dude just got ripped, man, like six pack abs for days. Uh, it was just, it was in, incredible. Um, really quickly, uh, back to the, 
the genetics here and the set point theory, again, stressing that it was just a theory, hypothetically, would your genes determine what your set point weight would be uh, at birth, basically? And then you can kind of reset it from there? Great question. At birth, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, if that's going to be the idea, right, that you've been given this set of genes, and then by the time you're a full adult, you are going to want to be 160 or something to that effect. I, I don't know that our genes, you know, really translate that way, but perhaps. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, and this is, I'll, I'll continue to defend this. I think at the end of the day, your body fights for homeostasis. And if it's so used to being, um, once you get to it through adolescence and you kind of settled into adulthood, and once it's used to being a certain weight, it's going to defend that weight because it's comfortable in that it's maintained homeostasis with all the other metabolic processes that your body has to do. And so it wants to defend that. I don't know that it's set in stone at birth. I really don't want to say that it is uh, because I've seen, I've seen people reset it to a healthier set point. Um, I'm an example of that. You know, when I was, I guess I was in my adolescence, I was in my teenage years when I was overweight, but then my body got to a certain weight and it liked that weight and it was a healthy weight and I'm still at that weight. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I compete uh, prior to having two little kids. I competed a lot in, in endurance events in, in Ironman triathlons, um, as well as shorter distance as well. And so my weight, I get more lean uh, than what the weight I am now when I was racing and stuff, but that's a different situation, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, your body fights to maintain homeostasis. And if uh, anyone's looking for, you know, long-term weight loss, how to do it in terms of uh, neuroscience, what does neuroscience tell you? Here's the trick. You've got to do it little by little. That's the secret. I'm telling you. Why? Because your brain doesn't know. If you do it little by little, I don't know, 500 calories a week you cut or 500 a day, something to the point where your brain isn't thinking it's starving, which gets us to a key point of the course that we talk, that I talk about in the course. Your brain, when it thinks it's starving, holds on to everything, lowers your metabolism, holds on to all the fat because, hey, there's an impending famine. It's all about evolution for your brain, right? It's always about survival because our genes, talking about our genes, are, are meant to keep us alive. And the evolutionary threat forever <laughs> was starvation or severe cold, like cold weather, cold temperatures. So our genes don't get the memo that we have supermarkets that we have, Instacart, that I have, what, GoPuff, all those, I can get food anytime I want it. No, yeah. I'm not starving. I just want to lose five pounds or whatever it is. But you're doing it the wrong way if you do drastic measures, the yo-yo dieting, the, you know, cutting calories, way too many calories too soon. Because at the end of the day, your brain and your body is striving to maintain homeostasis. So if you trick it little by little, you don't make it think it's in a famine, then those genes don't get turned on to hold on to the fat and to prevent you from your weight loss goal, your long-term weight loss goal. Well, you just mentioned yo-yo dieting, which anyone who struggled with their weight undoubtedly has struggled with yo-yo dieting. You lose it, you put it back on, you lose it, you put it back on. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, when somebody goes on these quote-unquote diets overnight and they, they go from zero to 60 straight away, is that why it's so hard for them to maintain that weight loss long-term? Because they never did get the opportunity then for their brain to gradually adjust. And they just made this drastic change and the brain was just like, no, nope, we're going to hold on to the way that it was. The brain was fighting it the whole time. And those uh, measures that they took were so drastic that they weren't sustainable. At the end of the day, the measures that they took were short-term fixed 
was a short-term fix for them. And so the brain is still fighting, fighting it, fighting it. They were probably feeling really hungry, you know, whereas you want to get to the point where your brain's not noticing and it's not going to trigger the hunger, you know, a hunger cascade, right? And the genes aren't going to, the neuropeptides are not going to increase the increased hunger. And why does that happen that we even get an increase in hunger? Uh, feelings. It's because your brain is telling you we have a caloric deficit. We're we're hungry. We don't want to starve to death because our brain is protecting us from starvation. Our brain is again, it's evolution. It's always going to want to keep us alive. And our brains, our bodies don't view uh, a a surplus of calories. You know, if we eat too much, with the same alarm bells as too little calories. Too little calories. Our our genes are still in survival mode. They want us to not, you know, experience a famine. And so it does everything we can to tell us, go find some food, go hunt for berries, because you're, you're at a, an energy deficit. So yeah, it's always, it's always about that, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of, uh, in terms of the involvement of our genes. Uh, we haven't yet evolved. Maybe one day we will to the point where our genes mention, our, our genes are more threatened by the energy surplus. By having too many calories. Did you ever notice that it's easy to put on a couple pounds, but it's really hard to drop a couple pounds? That's because our genes have evolved to think a couple pounds are fine because we might need them the next time we have a famine. We might need to pull on those fat stores. From an evolutionary perspective, it was it was advantageous for us to have a few a couple pounds. Now, a couple pounds in the American, you know, in, in our society is not a couple pounds. It becomes several pounds. It becomes overblown, right? And that, that's when we start to deal with the situation where the body zone homeostasis is, is disproportionate, disproportional. And all those mechanisms, all those backup mechanisms that we have to maintain homeostasis have gone completely out of whack. Um, and that's problematic, obviously. But the, sticking with that gradual change versus hardcore overnight, um, there are people, and, and myself included, who uh, when they have long-term success making a change, whether it's quitting smoking or finally losing weight and keeping it off, it is because that change was made overnight and there was not this gradual uh, ramping up or ramping down, however it is that you want to look at it. Um, mm -hmm. I have found success in that arena. Maybe I'm wired differently. However, you also mentioned then that these changes that are being made uh, also need to be sustainable. 100%. Is, is yeah. that really the key is finding out what is sustainable for that person? And then if they really hit on that, what works for them, then it really doesn't matter so much how quickly or how slowly they implement these changes. 100%. And in your situation, when you first switched, did that dramatic switch, you were probably like, and you had a doctor, right? You probably said, this is where, this is what is normal for me to eat in a day. And initially you were probably hungry. It was probably a massive, you know, adjustment. But because you're, you had, you know, those, that guidance, those tools to know that this is what really I have to tell my body is normal to eat until my body finally gives, you know, gives in and says, yeah, it is normal because it is. This is the normal amount of food to eat today. Um, your situation was unique in that regard. But at the end of the day, it's about sustainability, right? It's going to be much harder the way you described it because it's a sudden change. It's a drastic change. And, and if it's a massive calorie deficit, which is really what I'm getting at, because if it's a massive calorie deficit, you're going to be fighting your body's starvation um, signal. Your body's signal to tell you that, hey, it's a famine, we need to eat more. Um, I'm going to lower your metabolism. I'm going to hold on to every fat cell I can because just in case we're experiencing a famine. Little does your genes and your body know 
that we have, you know, supermarkets, we have, you know, food any minute and time we want. And so um, it doesn't know. It's thinking that there's an intending famine. So at the end of the day, sustainable lifestyle changes will always be the answer, right? And that's something we all learn, I think, when we go through any type of weight loss. Um, you have to do, it's not, there's no quick fix. There's no quick anything. It's about finding what works for you to be the best you. And if that means a five pound less you, that means a 50 pound less you, whatever it is, you do it in a way that's sustainable. You know, you're living a lifestyle that is sustainable, that you're moving, you're, you're not eating as much, perhaps, um, depending on where you're starting from, but you're, um, you're living a sustainable, active lifestyle. Let me ask you this. Um, you, you mentioned drastic calorie deficits, right? So that often is part of these yo-yo diets, um, the, the beginning of them. Um, so let me ask you, if somebody goes on one of these diets, say they're eating 3000 calories a day, and then that gets slashed down to 1200, maybe even a thousand calories a day, person's mm -hmm. going to experience that rapid weight loss. But once that diet fails and they just can't take it anymore because it's not sustainable and they go for that slice of cake, does the body then like hold on to that fat even tighter? Because as you said, we are inherently programmed to store this fat because you don't know when that next famine is coming. And as far as your body's concerned, it just hit when you went on that thousand calorie diet. So do you hold on to this stuff even, even tighter because that's just Absolutely. it? And we've seen that in um, in both um, non-human primates, we've seen that in humans, we've seen that in lower mammals, that after a period of caloric restriction or, and or fasting, the refeeding and then the met metabolism that you see, the metabolic effects are beyond. They're always that much more stark. They always overeat for like several days, almost a full week. Um, and then it tapers back off to find where it was. But it takes a while to get to the point where you're eating what you were pre diet, so to speak, pre-caloric restriction. So yes, your body does kind of violently respond back saying, yeah, we need to get as much as we can and we need to hold on to it. Metabolism takes a big hit. Um, it does not, it's not as easy for your body to bounce back. And that's been shown, it's been replicated over and over again in the research um, in many different organisms. So without a doubt, yes, your body is mad <laughs> that you put it through that challenge. But it, it's also, it's not just mad, it's more wanting you to survive. So it's, it's responding um, appropriately in terms of evolution and saying, we got food available, we got food available, let's get it in and make sure we have enough. Yeah. Is, is it possible that the cravings actually are intensified once you reintroduce that kind of food? So the body, like you were just saying, got to get more in, got to get more in, got to get more in. So then once you do mm -hmm. break that diet, I mean, you're not just craving something. I mean, like you are craving it time and time and time again. Yes. And you just, you said craving and it made me think about the other component that we talked about, right? The hedonic, the pleasure seeking component of, um, of obesity, right? Of the bigger picture. So oh, we have, yeah, we'll, we'll get regions. into food addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of it because those certain reasons that have to do with pleasure, seeking pleasure are on fire at that point. And when you said, you know, the craving are intense. Yeah. They're on fire because that's another pathway. In addition to the head, uh, homeostatic pathway, that's another pathway in our brain that again, promotes survival. So if you're, if food brings you pleasure as it should, Food and sex are the two main things that, that increase serotonin, dopamine, all of those, you know, neurotransmitters we're aware of that, that bring us pleasure. There are certain areas in the brain that light up that increase production of these neurotransmitters when you're exposed to food and particularly once you've been 
um, without it for a while, for sure, that increases. There's also tons of studies to, to show that as well. All right. I, I love this. And what I want to do actually is just kind of put, put a pin in the conversation here. I want to come back and I want to do a part two just on this, because this is a topic that you can talk about forever. I certainly would love to listen to it forever. Um, and I think that the exam roomies would enjoy this forever as well. So can we hit pause here and then come back and do a deep dive on the, uh, the food addiction, the reward, the pleasure center, the the real you know brainy part of of why it is uh, that we we just struggle so much to lose weight. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Doctor Doctor Mickey Witt, uh, we will do part two in the near future. But right now, uh, before we get to that, you have a wonderful Instagram account. Um, what what is it? Where can people find you? So I created Mickey Eat Plants. Uh, as kind of a side Insta profile for me to post all my food. I started getting a lot of uh, friends just asking for recipes and asking for more food. And so instead of just kind of mixing all my food photos with my photos of myself, my family, me racing back when I raced, I decided, all right, I'm going to create Mickey Eats Plants um, on Instagram just to have a place for people to look at food, be inspired by it. I'm not by any means, you know, touting that I am the best recipe maker and the best you know, the foodie, but I love food. I love to eat and my food is pretty. So my goal with, with the Mickey Eats plants was to satisfy all those people telling me they wanted to see more pictures of my food, but also to motivate them to see that eating plant-based does not, is not just eating grass. You know, I, I always joke about that, you know, especially when I was training for Ironman, I would always say, hashtag keep calm, plants have protein. So <laughs> yeah, if you want, if you want to see more fun food, um, things that you can do with food, get food inspiration for sure. You can follow, follow me on Insta. And what's your website? MickeyEatsPlants.com. MickeyEatsPlants. <laughs> Same as the, as the Insta. So yeah, happy to be out there spreading inspiration as best I can. I'm, I'm, I'm loving the brand consistency. I'm noticing a theme. Very, very well done. Uh, Dr. Mickey Witt, uh, thank you very much for your time right now. And I uh, cannot wait to come back and really dive into food addiction and how the brain just lights up like a Christmas tree when we eat certain things. Sure does. I'm excited for that conversation too. If you feel like you've learned something today, raised your health IQ by a point or two, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee so that we can reach even more people to help them reclaim their health. And believe you me, each new subscription and five-star rating does in fact help to get this information to those who need it the most. Now here is a spoiler alert. We have already taped the second part of our conversation, and it is interesting. As a matter of fact, that is a gross understatement, especially if you're someone who has ever felt like they just can't live without that piece of chocolate or the bag of chips or whatever your feel-good food may be. Part two of our conversation is a deep dive into the brain and the theory that we can become hooked on food, meaning that a Big Mac is your cocaine, and the drive through is your dealer. Now, we've heard Dr. Neil Barnard talk a lot about this, especially with cheese. If you've ever read his book, The Cheese Trap, or you've heard him on the show previously, you're no doubt familiar with the term casomorphin. 
as in morphine, as in an opiate, as in an addictive substance, as in you can develop an addiction to the point where your dietary world revolves around getting that next hit of cheddar. But for many, despite the science, food addiction remains just a theory. So we are going to explore that during our next conversation, and we'll also introduce you to some terms that you may not yet be familiar with. Terms like neurochemicals, and hedonic and reward pathways, and circadian rhythmicity maintenance, and energy homeostasis. All of which are factors in why someone may be struggling with their weight, and why they just can't give up that trip to the old greasy spoon. Also on the next show, I will run down a list for you of what researchers at the University of Michigan have determined to be the most addictive foods out there. Really, really fascinating rankings based on the Yale Food Addiction Scale. And would it surprise you to know that the food that they found to be the most addictive is also the number one most eaten food in America? <laughs> yeah. But right now, let's head down to the exam room news desk for the latest in nutrition research. If you have high blood pressure, flavonoid-rich foods such as apples, berries, and pears might just be what the doctor ordered. A gut microbiome analysis of more than 900 people shows that those who ate the most foods that were packed with flavonoids tended to have lower systolic blood pressure. Conversely, those who skipped out on that apple a day and the flavonoids that come with it tended to have higher blood pressure. Researchers say the correlation is likely due to changes in gut bacteria diversity. The findings also show similar dietary interventions may help with vascular and cardiometabolic health. The study comes on the heels of research earlier this year showing that people who eat 600 milligrams of flavonoids per day are 20% less likely to experience cognitive decline. By the way, that 600 milligram mark is relatively easy to hit. And you think about it like this, just one three and a half ounce serving of blueberries has 160 milligrams of flavonoids. So that'll already get you a quarter of the way there. Pretty easy stuff. And if you would like to work with a pro on things like this and fine tune your diet to take your health to the next level, the doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center can help. Schedule an appointment today at barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. Telemedicine visits are available and insurance is accepted. So log on to barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 for a full list of states where services are available. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Mickey Witt, can't wait for the second part of our conversation to come out. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.